0: This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good
1: morning. Our passage this morning is Isaiah 64, and it is on page 623 in the Bible in front of you. Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when the fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly?
0: Good morning. Happy first day of spring. Yes, that is worth celebrating. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Hey, just with spring coming up, uh, one of the things that we like to do, it is a long tradition that we have, and by long, I mean we started it last year. second Sunday of the month, in uh, months when the weather is nice, we have cookouts just right out here. Um, so we're planning on starting those back up in April, uh, in just a few weeks. So be on the lookout for that. It's just a time where we can come together, share a meal, uh, bring some food, and get to know other people in our church. Uh, so it's a really fun time. I'm pumped that the weather is getting nice again, so we can all uh, be together and do stuff like that. So... Um, we're coming so close to the end of Isaiah. We have two weeks left uh, after this, uh, which is exciting. It's good. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into, jump into this. Yes, yeah, so Father, I, I can't give a better prayer than the one that we actually have right here in this, in this passage. Um, God, will you come to us? Will, will you open up the heavens? Will you rip back Anything that is holding us back from you, anything that is um, separating us from your presence, our, our sin, our stubbornness, things that we have in our life that feel so overwhelming, God, will you come and do what you said that you would do? We, we, we just sang it. We, we, we just sang about your greatness, your goodness, your power. So God, will you... Um, prove yourself to be powerful? Will you come and meet us in all of the places that feel desolate, that maybe are desolate, that are broken and destroyed and need to be put back together? Um, Our hope is that you're the one who will do that. And our hope is that you're the one who's able to do that. So in whatever time that we have together this morning, will you please um, open our eyes to your glory, to your power, your righteousness and save us. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Hey, let me give you a preview really quickly of where we're going uh, after we finish Isaiah. Um, We'll finish Isaiah right before Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, I'm really excited. My good friend Seth Stewart is going to come and preach for us. Some of you might know Seth. He was on staff with us um, a few years ago before he moved back to Oklahoma City to be on staff at a nonprofit down there called Spoken Gospel. Um, So he'll come back. He'll preach for us on Palm Sunday. We'll have Easter. And then after that, we're going to look through John 14 through 16, which is Jesus's farewell to his disciples. The night before uh, he goes to the cross, the night before he's betrayed, he knows um, that everything is about to change for the disciples who've been following him for years. He knows that they're going to be overwhelmed. He knows they're going to be confused. He knows that there's going to be a real lack of clarity of like, hey, what do we do? Where, where do we go? And Jesus' message in all of that and all of the chaos of the world that they're about to experience is, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. No matter what happens... I'll be with you, I'll be faithful, and here's why you can trust me, which seems like a good word for us in this time. So we'll spend a a little while in John 14 through 16 before we kind of get into our normal summer rhythm of the Psalms. But for now, we have a couple more weeks in Isaiah. Um, We're coming to the end where Isaiah is kind of summing everything up that we've looked at so far. We've been through 63 chapters of talking about who God is, God is the The Holy One of Israel, who's above everything. He is big. He is powerful. He's beyond comprehension. When he shows up, things shake. Um, Isaiah's been pointing this entire time to the fact that God alone saves. That's literally what his name means, is that God is the one who saves. Your hope, whatever hope you have, is in the fact that God is one who comes near and who can change things. And Isaiah has also been really honest about. Um, our sinfulness, our rebellion, the things that hold us back from God, the things that alienate us from God and from one another. He's been really honest about the way that the world is, the brokenness of the world, the conflict that we find in the world, the great loss that oftentimes we experience in the world. And in Isaiah 64, which is actually the last words that we have directly from Isaiah, uh, chapter 64 and 65 is God speaking. Um, in these last words, we see um, this prayer of a man who is full of longing. Um, he's standing probably at the end of his life, at the end of dealing with chaos, uncertainty, threats, wondering where God is, and he feels this deep longing inside of him that he, that he has to get out. He has to bring it to God. He has to say, "Hey, like how do I hold together all of these things about who I see you are, your greatness, your glory, your power, and how hopeless things around me seem to be um, it's it's a prayer from a man who doesn't actually know exactly how things are going to turn out and so he's full of this kind of yearning that Andre just talked about, this longing to see more, to know more, and to see God actually show up and save his people. And I wonder if you know what that feels like. I wonder if you'd know just maybe what it feels like to have this kind of deep longing to feel that feeling down inside of your gut to be somewhere, to accomplish something, to be with someone, to see something happen. Or if you are in one of those beautiful, kind of transcendent moments of life, like the birth of a baby, or standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, or feeling really small in the face of something that is beautiful and glorious. It's that kind of like gut feeling that Isaiah is expressing. It's the longing that's in all of us to be caught up into something that is bigger, deeper, and more meaningful than our typical day-to-day. Is this the way that it's always going to be? C.S. Lewis once wrote that the sweetest thing in all of my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty comes from. And Isaiah is saying, hey, I know where all the beauty comes from. I I see it, and I want more of that. The Bible, Isaiah, wants you to know that you were made for God. You were made to know God. You were made to stand in his presence, to be caught up in his power, his glory, his holiness. And all the longing that we feel in the world is ultimately the longing to be with him to be reunited with him because longing reveals absence, right? It's the absence of presence, the absence of purpose, the absence of love or relationship we're created to walk with, to know this God, but too often insist on our own way. We know that something isn't right, but we give up on any kind of hope for meaningful change. And so Isaiah 64 is just looking at all of that and is saying, it's, it's a prayer that stares reality in the face and begs God to come and make everything right again. It's a prayer by someone who knows the pain of sin, failure, disappointment, brokenness, loss the need to be rescued or saved. It's a prayer, to use a loaded word, for revival. Which revival isn't something that you schedule. I grew up in churches where the, you know, the evangelists would come in and we schedule revival on this weekend. Revival is what happens when there is a fresh experience of God's presence God's power, where lives are integrated with the knowledge, the reality of who God is. It's like the promises of God are real. We're living like they're real, and we're moving deeper into the knowledge, the holiness, the glory of God that does touch our deepest longings. And Isaiah says, hey, God's presence is what makes that happen. God's presence is the answer to our longings, God's presence is our one hope. For revival. And so in this prayer, Isaiah shows us how to pray, how to post ourselves like watchmen, like he said in the last few chapters, um, to not give God rest until all that he he does, all that he said he would do. And it unfolds in three parts. Uh, He starts with this longing for the presence of God, He moves to a lament over our separation from God, and then he looks forward to restoration and asks God to do what he said he would do. So let's look down at our Bibles. If you close them, page 623, Um, let's look at this longing for the presence of God that we see in the first few verses. Isaiah 64, verse one, Isaiah says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. Pause real quick. Our English Bibles are a translation of ancient Hebrew. Um, So we had a lot of really smart people who would come and translate languages that we don't know how to read into something that we can read. When I was in seminary, I tried to learn Hebrew and I failed pretty spectacularly. Um, But my professor, Dr. Barry Beitzel, was basically Indiana Jones. Um, He didn't teach us much about Hebrew, but he did tell us a lot of stories about getting lost in the middle of the desert in Israel and having to be saved by Bedouin shepherds who showed us the road as he was looking for this hidden town or city or whatever it was that he was looking for on this archaeological dig. It was great. I loved it. Did not learn a single thing about how to translate Hebrew, so sorry about that. Um, But... One of the things I remember him saying over and over, this is one thing that maybe I learned about uh, Hebrew. He said, hey, when we see words translated into English, it, it, it's, it's hard to like capture or express what is actually going on in the original language. So we look at this word at the beginning, translated O, and, it's, and, and that's a weak word. That's, it's not actually a word in Hebrew. It's more like a guttural groan or expression, it's, it's hard to translate. It's like it's this groan that comes up from like deep down in your belly when you care really passionate about something. You can't hold it anymore. And you're like, oh, God, will you do something it's, it's strong, it's visceral, it's, it's emotional. It's this explosion of emotion from deep inside. And Isaiah has just been recounting everything that God has done in Israel's history. That's what building an Ebenezer is in that, stone that, or in that song that we sang. He, he's, he's building an Ebenezer. He's looking back and Ebenezer was like a pile of rocks that people would build at meaningful times or places in their history where God showed up and moved. So in the future, they could look back and see this stone and say, oh no, this this is when God moved. This is when God showed up. If he did it then, won't he do it now? That's exactly what Isaiah has been saying. He's saying, hey, you're the God who rescued us from slavery in Egypt. You're the God who brought us through the desert. You're the God who brought us to yourself, who had mercy on us, who had compassion on us, who showed us love even when we were unlovely and unlovable. That's everything that you've done. And as he remembers all of that and he looks around at the present, he says, God, won't you do that again? You've done it in the past. Like, will will you please show up, even though everyone and everything else has failed, even though we failed, even though I have failed. God, you're our father. You're our redeemer from of old. That's your name, Isaiah 63, 16. And even though that's true, we've wandered. Our hearts are hard. Our enemies won, and we've been humiliated. So God, will you do something? He takes an honest look at God's character, God's history and the present situation. It says, God, will you rend the heavens? That word rend is actually a pretty violent, active word. It's talking about ripping something in half. So in the Old Testament in this time, if someone is mourning, if they've experienced loss or the death of someone, they'd rip and tear their clothes. It's the same word here. Or if a king loses in a battle and loses his kingdom, the kingdom is ripped away. It's rent away from him. And so Isaiah is saying, hey, God, will you rip open the sky? Will you tear through anything that is separating us from you? And will you come near to us? Which is actually a really risky prayer because look how he describes what happens when God shows up. When God shows up, the mountains quake at your presence. It's like when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. God's presence is powerful. Have you ever thought about what it would be like If God showed up in his power and in his glory, it's not something that you can treat casually. It's something that is powerful. It's something that is overwhelming. About 10 years ago, I spent um, part of a summer uh, up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, which is a Lakota Sioux reservation. Um, it is beautiful up there. It's Badlands country, big sky country. There are rattlesnakes everywhere. Um, and we, we were up there kind of working, uh, At a mission trying to put on this camp for uh, different kids in the community up there. And like the end of the the week, we're supposed to put on this carnival, you know, put up a bunch of tents, uh, play a bunch of games, and just have a spot for some of the kids in the community to come, have a fun time, have a safe space, learn about Jesus. And as we're building this, um, you can see for, you know, like miles and miles and miles in any direction, and we see these thunderclouds just like starting to build up and thunder starts rumbling. It's a gorgeous, bright blue sky, clear day. Um, And within, you know, 15, 20 minutes, all of a sudden you have this massive storm roll through and destroyed everything that we've been setting up. It's like thunder starts coming, there's dead silence, and all of a sudden the wind is blowing like 85, 90 miles an hour, destroys everything. And I remember in that moment never feeling like so small and powerless as I'm standing on the edge of this massive storm that just destroyed everything that I've been like working really hard to set up. And Isaiah says, hey, that's kind of like what happens when God shows up. Except he's not blowing down tents, it's literally causing mountains to quake and tremble. Mountains which are symbols of strength, stability, they don't move. In Isaiah's time, a lot of people thought that's where the gods lived. So if you wanted to get in touch with divine power, you go up into the mountains on top of a mountain. And Isaiah says, hey, God, when you show up, you shake every stronghold, every place that we think is strong, impenetrable, and can never fall. It actually quakes and trembles and shakes before you. He said it's like when fire goes through dry kindling. Have you ever driven down 35 through the Flint Hills, like going to Wichita or Oklahoma City when they're doing burns? And the, like the fields are just burning and there's smoke billowing. And the dry grass just gets burned up. Isaiah says, hey, that's what it's like when God shows up in power. God's presence is consuming. It doesn't leave anything that it touches unchanged. As I was reading this, I thought about the author, Annie Dillard, um, in the 80s, she wrote about how casually people come into church or come into God's presence without thinking what we're doing. She said, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so casually invoke? Like, or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It's madness, she says, to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life reservers and signal players. They should lash us into our pews because the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense to the casual way we've treated him, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Coming to God is risky. His power doesn't actually leave us unchanged. And Isaiah is saying, I see that. I know that, I know what what it's like. I've seen you come down in power on Mount Sinai before when you brought us out of slavery in Egypt and God, I want that again. That's the only thing that can change us. That's the only thing that can set us right. So he prays, God, will you do that again? Will you come near to us? Will you rescue us? Will you bring us back to you and save us from our enemies? God, when you show up, will you, verse two, make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence? So he's looking out at all of the powerful nations in the world, all of the nations that are threatening his home, his life, his people. He says, hey, God, will you show them that they're not God? Will you show them who you are? Will you help them to know your name? Will will, will you make them tremble before you? Which sounds threatening, and it is, but that's also the exact same language that the Old Testament uses to talk about how God came and make a covenant with his people. So in Exodus, God comes and makes his name known to Israel, In Jeremiah 33, God says that his people are going to tremble and quake at his presence because of all of the goodness that he's going to show them. And so what Isaiah is saying here in this verse is not, hey, God, will you just smash our enemies and help us to be okay? He's saying, hey, will you not contain your glory just to my little group of people? Will you actually bring the entire world into your presence? Will you save everyone? Everyone. Will you even save our enemies, the ones who are oppressing us, the ones who are making our life miserable? Why? Because, verse verse 4, he comes to those who wait for him. He doesn't come to just a certain type of person from a certain background. Who does God meet? God meets and makes himself known to those who will wait for him who will trust in him, who will hope in him, not those who have it all together, not those who are smart, not those who have made no mistakes. He comes to those who believe or have faith. It doesn't have to be a perfect faith. It can be a trembling, quaking faith because Isaiah has plenty of questions as we'll see later on in this prayer. But he's saying, hey, God, you show up and you reward and you save the person who wants you, who waits for you, who has hope in you because God's presence is our one hope for revival, for salvation in the world. But Isaiah says there's an obstacle He knows that we're made for the presence of God. And although God has time and time again come to his people, come through for his people, we're sinful people. And sin, by definition, separates, cuts off, alienates, and removes us from the presence of God. So the prayer turns to a a lamentation, a lament over our separation from God. Look at the second half of verse 5. He's talking about all, all about God coming and showing up in power. But he says, hey, behold, you, you were angry. I know you're angry because we sinned. And in our sins, we've been a long time. Shall we be saved? This, this verse is actually the central question in Isaiah's prayer. Is it possible after everything that's happened, after all the time that has passed, to be saved. He's not just asking an individual question, is it too late for me? He's looking back at his people's history. He's standing at the end of generations of failure, generations of exploitation, of oppression, of failing to do what God told the people to do, of rebellion. And he's looking back and he's saying, hey, is is there... It like has too much happened. Is it actually too late for us to be saved from our sins? It's March Madness right now, which means that all of our brackets are completely busted, broken. Not even paying attention to them anymore because um, Cinderella is having a great time, um, which is why we why, why we love it. Um, there's this point though in close games. Where you're 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 wondering like, man, this game could go either way, right? Um, the team that's coming back, like, they, there's still enough time. They still have a shot. They still have a chance to pull off the upset, to come from behind, and to win. But there comes this point in the game where you kind of sense like, hey, depending on how this possession goes, um, that's that's going to be the game, right? If they can score, then like they're still in it. They could probably come back and win. But if if the other team gets a stop here. there's there's just not enough time left. There's just not enough time to come back. There's not enough time to win. And Isaiah finds himself standing at that point, right? He's like, hey, we've been behind for a long time. And I don't know if there's actually enough time for us to come back. Because verse six, he says, man, like our situation is pretty bad. We've all become like one who's unclean, All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away, which is actually, this is actually pretty graphic language. Um, he's using the language of a disease, a skin disease that, it, that, that, that will spread. We've all become like one who is unclean. Sin isn't just something that we do. It's this infection that spreads through us. It's something that is inside of us, corrupting every single part of us, which doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be or do the worst things that we can possibly do all the time. What he's saying is, hey, there's no part of us. There's no part of our lives that is left untouched by sin. It's deep inside of us. He says even the best parts of us are righteous deeds. Even the things that we're really proud of aren't nearly as impressive as they could be. They're like the rags that people would use to cleanse and purify themselves to wipe the blood off, to clean off the dirt and the grime. They're not worthless. They're just not exempt from the corruption and the sin inside of us. And worst of all, he says, we're not in as much control as we like to think. We're blown around to and fro, like leaves inside of a wind, like leaves in a windstorm. He's saying, hey, if you ever wonder like why you did that thing again, or lost your temper again, or ended up drinking too much again, ended up in that place again. It's because there is a power inside of us and outside of us that's doing more to us than we realize. Like, we are hopelessly corrupted and controlled by the power of sin, Isaiah says. And maybe this is the worst part, he just keeps going downhill. In verse seven, a lot of times we can't be too bothered by it. We see everything that's going on, but there's no one who calls upon your name. There's no one who rouses himself to take a hold of you. We might feel intensely about it for a while. We might um, notice that things aren't right. But gradually, that feeling fades away, and we can't bring ourselves to get up and grab a hold of God. Which is why Isaiah says we actually need God to come to us. We need God to come. We need Him to um, make things right, to free us from everything that has been trapping us and freeing us for a long time. And He says, "Hey, is is there a way out? Because if you're going to hide your face from us, there's no hope." It's hopeless, God says, or Isaiah says, if you don't show up, if you don't um, show your face to us, God's presence is our hope for revival, for change. We're cut off for Him or from Him, and so Isaiah is looking at all of that, and in light of that, he makes this turn and begins appealing to God and begins asking Him to restore Him, to restore the people. He's looking for restoration. Look down at verse eight. So, but now God, now O Lord, you're our father. We're the clay, you are our potter. We're all the work of your hand. So be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We're all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. So, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? That's the end of the prayer. It's the last words that we actually have from Isaiah. There's no resolution yet there's just a desperation for God to open up his eyes and see the devastation that Isaiah sees and feels in his bones. Because Jerusalem, the place that God said he would live forever, is in ruins. Like, Uh, instead of the kind of consuming fire of God's presence in verse two, what Isaiah says is like when God shows up in power, instead of the kind of fire that filled the temple in 2 Chronicles 7, when God's presence and glory comes down, the temple has been burned with the fire of Babylon. Everything that they've hoped in is broken down. It's really hard for us to comprehend like the total level of loss that Isaiah is talking about in these verses because Jerusalem was more than just a city. Jerusalem was a symbol of God's provision, God's protection, God's rule, his reign, God's presence, always there with his people. The average person in Isaiah's day built their identity around Jerusalem. As long as we have Jerusalem, God is still with us. God will still come through for us. What happens if Jerusalem isn't there anymore? Like, what, what, what do you do? Where do you go? It was just gone. So he's wrestling here with absence. He's wrestling here with, God, where, where, where are you? Don't you even care? When you see all of this, will you restrain yourself? Can you really stay silent when you hear all the cries for help? He's being very bold and very direct with the way that he approaches God and asks God to do something. Boldness in prayer is not a bad thing. It's actually not bad to bring those honest gut level longings and yearnings and this is not the way it's supposed to be to the face and to the presence of God. Because isaiah knows who god is like he's, he's he said it over and over and over again if god is the one who is indifferent to destruction like this then like what hope do we have we might as well just like try to figure out how to make things best for us but isaiah says hey that's not who you are i know that's not who you are who are you well you're 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 a father Verse 8, we're the clay. You are our potter. We're all the work of your hands. God, He's saying, you're totally, completely in the driver's seat. There's, there's never been a moment when you've been out of control. There's never been a moment when you haven't been the main character in this drama. You're the one who is shaping and molding everything. Even though we forget about that over and over again, Isaiah's saying, hey, God, you're in control. I know you're in control. I know that you are sovereign. Just like a master potter is sovereign or in control over the clay that he's crafting, that's who you are for us. Which again, can be pretty scary if we think about it. If we really think about the implications of what this means, if it is actually true that God is the one who is in complete control, what does that mean for us? Like, are, are we safe? Can we entrust ourselves to this God? And Isaiah says, well, yeah, you, you can, but because back up to the beginning of verse eight, before God is this controlling person who's just like bringing everything together, he's a father. Like, you can trust someone who is fundamentally deep down to their core a father and who is also in complete control. And I get that the that 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 concept of fatherhood is really loaded. Um, I know that we have pain in this room about like the absence of fathers in your life, the failures of your father, uh, or or maybe like even wrestling with the disappointment over your own shortcomings as a father. Like the subject is full of. Um, Emotion and really like deeply rooted passion in our lives, and the reason for that is because we know all. We intuitively know how important dads are. We 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 know how important it is to have a father, like a good father. And Isaiah is saying, "Hey, you're what every father should be. Like every good father in the world is just a reflection of the deep." Loving, caring fatherhood of God. And that's who he's always been. And so Isaiah is saying, hey, you're not some controlling, um, vindictive, impersonal force that shakes everything up. The same God who changes absolutely everything when he's present is the God who gets his hands dirty in our lives. Like, he's the God who stoops down and shapes and molds and conforms us to his image, who says, or who will do everything that he said he will do for us. And Isaiah's saying, hey, I know that's who you are. I know that's who you are. So, Father, the one who has always been our redeemer, the one who has always loved us, the same one who shows up and shakes everything will you open your eyes to us and will you come rescue us from sin put things right and rebuild what has been torn down and what's crazy is Isaiah never lived to see the answer to his prayer like he died when things were still uncertain he knew what was going to happen he knew that the people were going to continue on in their failure and That he wasn't actually going to experience all the fullness of everything he was looking for. But he writes this down for us to say, hey, like God will act. God will always show up and act. And it won't often be in the way we expect him to. Um, Look at verse four. Is it verse four? Verse three said, hey, when you did awesome things that we didn't look for, he's saying there, hey, you've consistently showed up and acted in ways that we did not expect you to. Like, we want you to come down in fire. God, we want you to come down in all of your power and all of your glory. We want you to set everything right again. And he's also saying, hey, and I realize that the way that you answer our prayers often is not in the way that we would expect. Because God did answer this prayer. We're standing in a place different from Isaiah. We know that God was not indifferent. We know that when God looked down and saw, he wasn't just like, well, hope they figure it out. No, he actually moved towards us. He actually did come and was present with us. And how is he present? Through the person of Jesus Christ. So he doesn't come down and obliterate everything. He comes down in total obscurity. And is born as a son to a peasant couple in Galilee. And he comes and he lives a life of perfect faithfulness devoted to his father. He goes to a cross and he dies for his enemies. He makes his name known to the world. He sends his spirit to always be present with us. And he says, hey, I will always be with you. To the end of the age, no matter what happens, I will always, always, always be with you. He takes our filthy garments, and he gives us his perfect, clean righteousness. Through his blood, we're cleansed from our sin, and through his spirit, we're invited into a new way of living before the face of God, in the presence of God. Jesus is the answer to this prayer. And so the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 when he's thinking about this prayer says, "Hey, let's give thanks that we've come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken." When God came down and shook everything in the past, like that's what he's done, but he's he did that, he shakes everything to bring us into a home, a family, and a kingdom that can never be shaken which is why we come together every single week, right? Because we're full of longing. We're full of this sense uh, that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Like we feel that absence and we feel that gap in our lives every day. No matter how often we try to numb ourselves from it or try to look away from it, we're always realizing that we're cut off from something, that we need something bigger than ourselves to come to us to save us and to bring us back to the one that we were made for. And so we come together to remember, to pray. What would it be like if we prayed prayers like this? We have a group of people at nine o'clock every Sunday who gather to pray prayers like this uh, here at the building. If if you wanna wanna come join and ask God to show up, to move in power, to change lives, to free us from sin, like, let's do that. If if there's no other application from the sermon other than, like, God is really big and really powerful and you can come to him and ask bold questions because he's a king and he's also your father, then, like, that's a win. Let's act like that. And let's come boldly into his presence knowing that he won't turn us away. If we're in him, he will never, ever turn us away and he is not done with us yet because the answer to, to that question hey have we been in our sins for too long like the answer is in christ no forgiveness is always possible redemption is always possible which is why we come to a table every single week to not just think about this not just hear it but to actually like touch with our hands and taste with our mouths like the grace of jesus that it's a reminder communion is a reminder that he's with us always even to the end of the age he's going to be faithful to what he said and paul in first corinthians says hey every time you come to this table you actually proclaim the lord's death until he comes again so what we're doing is we're looking back, just like Isaiah did. We're looking back to the faithfulness of God, the promises of God, all the ways that God has acted in the past through Jesus in big picture ways and in our own personal lives. And we're saying, that's who you are. That's who you will always be. And my hope is in you. I will wait for you. If that's you, you're a Christian, come to, this me- come to the table and receive the meal. Our our communion table is open to anyone who claims the name of Jesus. Um, If you have faith, then I'd invite you to come forward and remember, commune with this God, like this powerful God. And if that's not you, um, man, we're we're so happy that you're here. We would love to talk more with you about who God is, about who Jesus is, about the life and the hope and the forgiveness that you can find in him. We'll have people over here to the side who would love to pray with you, do that instead of taking communion. Um, do business with God, deal with God, ask him questions, and maybe believe in him for the first time. We would we would love that. Uh, the way that we do communion here is we'll have three stations up front, one station in the balcony. Um, the three stations up front will be t- uh, two loaves of bread and a can be a uh, wine glass and a juice glass. The wine is in the stoneware, the juice is in the glass. They'll be on either side here, and we'll have um, individual self serve that's also gluten free right here in the middle if you'd prefer to do it that way. We just tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, um, and then go on our, go on our way. Um, so we're going to do that. We're going to worship. Um, Let's spend some time praying together, also. Like, come and get prayer if you need prayer. Come and do what Isaiah is telling us to do, which is ask bold things of God, trusting that He'll come through. So I'll pray, and then we'll go do all of that. Yeah, God, uh, will you open the heavens and come down? Because even though you are, you are with us, you promised that you would never leave us and that you would never forsake us. We believe that. Um, there is still this longing and yearning that we have to know you more, to see you more, to experience you more. Um, and so I ask that you do that. Spirit of God, will you move really powerfully to change our hearts, to change our lives, Jesus, we, we, we need you. We need you really, really deeply. And so I wanna ask that you would do everything that you promised, that you would save us, that you would cleanse us, that you would make us more like you, and that you would help us to know you as Father, like as a dad that we can come to um, who cares about us, who sees us, and who knows us. So Lord Jesus, be glorified in this place. Help us to see you as you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You can come when you're ready.